Acts chapter 12 this morning. Verses 1 through 19. Acts 12, 1 through 19. And God's word says this. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he had knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Please be seated. Lord, thank you for this passage. Help us this morning by your Holy Spirit as we contemplate, learn from it. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So after devoting the last two Sundays to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, we're now back at the book of Acts. And the book of Acts has rightly been called... uh, It's wrongly been called the Acts of the Apostles. It's rightly been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And it's God's work in the church. And as you see what God did and how the Holy Spirit worked and moved, uh, it's it's amazing and it's instructive and it's good. It's interesting. Uh, We understand, and, and where we've been so far in this book is we're about halfway through it. We read about Jesus ascending into heaven. We read about Jesus sending the Holy Spirit, the wonderful growth of the church, real human beings, people like us, uh, saved by God. With the growth came some difficulty, as you remember, needs that needed to be met, organization uh, taking place on how to take care of the widows who were in need, and, and what we see as the precursor to the diaconate within the church, people chosen out and and selected by the church, but then approved by the apostles to be the ones to distribute and make sure uh, the social needs were being met in the congregation. 
There was a shocking church discipline case, Ananias and Sapphira, where God did the excommunicating. The martyrdom of Stephen and the scattering of the church, uh, many of them. Uh, The conversion of Saul, who we know as Paul. And then wonderfully, and where we're at right about now, is the inclusion, how this uh, was revealed that it wasn't just a church for one race only, but the saving and the falling of the Holy Spirit on Samaritans and on Gentiles. And it's become a global church and is becoming that. I was listening and wrapping up uh, the first half of a church history book uh, on, on audio this week. And I heard one church historian say that as the body of Christ grew and it was so diverse and so racially diverse that the people didn't know what to say and the secular ones even just started calling it a new race and they didn't know what to do and where to plug these people in because uh, they were coming out of their categories and into the body of Christ and they were a new race of people. And that was interesting to me and good to hear in a day of like ours uh, where uh, there's more dividing in a race-obsessed world. This was Jesus uniting the races of people together under his banner. Never forget, Satan divides, Jesus unites. That pastor who tried to train me would always say, Satan's uh, methods have been the same from the beginning, divide and conquer. And Jesus brings unity because we have him as our common denominator. We find ourselves this morning in Jerusalem with the church who has stayed behind through the scattering. And we're here at one of the most encouraging incidences uh, ever. This can encourage you and thrill you if you look at it and embrace it and as you see God as deliverer. So we need to hear this this morning and I'm glad that all of us are here to hear this and to absorb ourselves into the word and to have the word absorbed into us. Uh, Four sections this morning. One, the powers that be. Two, the prayers that bind. Three, the preservation that bewilders. And finally, as our closing, the parallel that begs attention. The powers that be. The prayers that bind. The preservation that bewilders. And the parallel that begs attention. First, the powers that be. Who was the boss uh, in Jerusalem in those days? Well, the first one we encounter is Herod, right there at the start. About that time, Herod the king did something. It says he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Uh, interesting Greek construction. I was interesting. How would you lay violent hands? What a description, and why would they translate it that way? And they got it right. He was laying hands on them, but they weren't hands that were good. They were bad. They weren't hands of benediction. They were violent hands. Killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Uh, All indications uh, uh, would lead toward understanding that the killing with the sword being a decapitation with the sword. It's not the Herod that we know of. Dr. Kistemacher used to say, it's not that Herod. There's five Herods. You need to know there's five Herods. And he would talk about the various ones. This was a different Herod. This wasn't the Herod that had the little babies killed. There were different ones. We're not going to go into all of that. You can go into that. It's interesting. But there was a, a, a unique group. Understand, every Herod was bad. Some may be worse than others, depending on what your own criteria is. But you don't want to name your baby boy Herod. <laughs> that's just that's what your takeaway is at. Herod, not good. Herod, bad. And he is the power that be representing the government in that day. He was not interested in morality. He was not interested at all in morality. He didn't kill James because James offended him, because James was saying that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. It was a purely political move. It's clear. And if you look at the secular historians that talk about this Herod, it's all politics with him. He might signal that he's a virtuous man. Politics. Politics, keeping in power, personal riches. He was more interested in the good opinion of the Jewish leadership than he was in what was right. 
And he was not really interested in the good opinion of the Jewish leadership in and of itself, but for himself. This is like a corporation or maybe even a sports league that's happy to virtue signal on one thing to keep these people happy and make them like him while they do business with other people who are harvesting uh, Muslims, for instance, for their organs and doing terrible things and not saying a peep about that, but really getting involved here. It's all political. It's about money. It's about, it's about keeping in power. That's what Herod was doing then. Times don't change. Things don't change. People don't change. Power struggles, structures don't change. And Herod was fine. As long as everyone's making money, as long as the boat's not being rocked, as long as people are going along with it, hey, we can decapitate James, and maybe, if it's popular enough, maybe we'll do it to Peter. And so he goes and arrests Peter and brings Peter in, locks him up. Uh, Unreal how he put, uh, they said this is an overkill. And you see four squads of soldiers around him and the double chains and all of these things that he did to make sure Peter was locked up. What's that one little guy going to do? Powers that be. Herod representing the secular power structure. The Jews, it says, and the Jewish people. Again, we must understand this is not every Jewish person who was ever alive. Peter was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Uh, The Christians in Jerusalem were Jews. The others that scattered people that were coming to Christ were not. So this is not an indictment of Jewish people per se. When it talks about the Jews in Scripture, particularly the ones that were the enemies of Jesus, what you're really talking about are the religious power structure of the day. The ones who controlled culture in that day because religion was so pervasive. You remember how uh, uh, when Jesus healed the, the man born blind and the parents were so afraid because nobody wanted to get kicked out of the temple because to get kicked out of the temple was basically to get kicked out of life. That was banned from all their social structures. That was, you are gone. You don't exist anymore. And there was a strong cultural pressure from the religious side of things, along with Herod from the secular side of things. And the two were in cahoots to control culture that day. Powerful, influential, They determined the news cycle. They worked together on what stories were going to be the big stories in Jerusalem. And James was killed. Herod said, that was good. That cements our relationship. Let's try it with Peter. Combined for a soft totalitarianism. Behead James or cheer for his beheading. Together, that culture, that pop culture, religion, uh, politics, uh, power, that was the strong arm of the law. It is not dissimilar to the times in which we live today. One Supreme Court vote from saying we can outlaw people gathering in their houses for prayer. That just happened this week. We don't want you to pray. You can gather if you want to gather and sell Amway. You can gather if you want to get together and host Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts. You cannot gather to pray unless we say you can. I think one Supreme Court justice says, well, that's comparing watermelons to oranges or something like that. I forget how her phrase was. Um, this is, uh, there's a, there's a, a certain uh, sense of power And those are what we would call the powers that be. We live in that world. It's not dissimilar to the first century world of the Christian church. But who is the real power? Who's the real power in this story? 
The Christians were not powerful, but their message was powerful. That gospel message was strong. That gospel message was something that was different. Their message was not fight against culture. Their message was render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Paul, later on, the message is, you live quiet lives. You're not to, to rise up and rebel. And You live quiet lives and you share the gospel. Remember, Jesus said, Peter, put down your sword. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Interesting that some of them even died by the sword uh, without taking up the sword. He's not saying uh, physical, human, earthly rebellion. But the message is self is a threat. What is the gospel message? What are we talking about that is so threatening? We're saying that there is something spiritually true that transcends this world. There is something that matters that goes beyond this stuff that we get so excited about. And then something happens and we go, why was I so excited about that? Why was I dazzled by that fool's gold? Why was I like that little... Interesting, I'm I'm listening to a book. I I recommend this. It has nothing... The Boys in the Boat. It's 1936. It's the rowing team from the state of Washington. And uh, uh, just talking about people who grew up through the Depression and the hardship and what was going on. And the one guy, his gold medal that he won over in Berlin in in 1936, he's... farm boys and, and uh, uh, logger type people and all that. And they thought they lost his gold medal and a squirrel had taken it and, and, and hidden it up in an attic somewhere. And I thought, you know, that meant nothing to the squirrel. It meant everything to this, to this person and his family particularly. And I think, how have I in my life uh, up till now and, and no doubt even still now, why am I taking all that stuff that's a little shiny that attracts me that, that has nothing to do with my real life and squirreling that away and hiding that away and storing that and taking that? And uh, What are we doing? And our message is this, something true that transcends this world. The message that we believe as Christians are things like seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these Trivial things will be added unto you. All this stuff that that comes along. Central to our message as Christians, central to it all, and people don't even know what churches say or are supposed to say anymore, it seems like. The central to it all and indispensable to it all has to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God that you deserve, that I deserve being averted. Because Jesus Christ bore that wrath and paid the price for his people. And that is a dangerous message to a world that wants to go along and say, don't rock the boat, don't rock the boat, don't rock the boat. That true message demolishes any kinds of works righteousness. The religious leaders in that day, they peddled in righteousness. They defined what it was. They could change what the emphasis, they could talk about the cultural sins, they could talk about all that stuff. They were the definers. They had the scriptures and the people didn't have them. And to talk about Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of the law and our salvation looking to him threatened them. It threatened their status, threatened them as influencers. Diminished their power. Secular leaders' power was over economy and freedom and even over life and death. That's why Paul could say, go ahead for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Live or die, I live for Christ. And you can't take heaven away from me. You can drive me out of my earthly home, but Jesus went to prepare a place for me. And that place is a better place. And you can kill this body, but as the Bible says, as Jesus said, don't fear the ones who can kill the body. Fear the one who can destroy your soul forever and send it to hell. That's the fear. 
And so the message of Christianity is so radically different. And it's a threat. People are scared of people who are different and people who really believe it. By your very existence as a Christian, you are a threat in your circle of friends, in your work group when you won't do something unethical or when you won't bow down and worship the person with the dominant personality who wants to be the boss and everybody else kowtows and you don't. Thinking of Mordecai and uh, not bowing down to wicked Haman and genocide uh, threatened because of that. Powers that be, Herod the secular, the Jewish religious leaders over the culture, but the gospel message and then the real, real power, because it's not the gospel message if there's nothing behind it. Who is the real power? The real, I wrote, how did I write it? The real, real power, the ultimate power, the one who's responsible for the gospel. And we see in here the God who can open the prison doors when he wants Go ahead, assign four squads of soldiers to that fisherman. Put him in chains behind bars, behind another gate. God is more powerful than any squad of soldiers. We see the powers that be and the real powers that be. Think about that servant and Elisha and them sitting on the wall and surrounded And Elisha's saying, oh God, open this servant's eyes. It's back in Kings. Open his eyes, let him see what's really going on. And his eyes are open and he sees those chariots of fire circling around. And he goes, oh, okay, I got it now. What I'm seeing is not what's really real. Time for my favorite Winston Churchill quote. There's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, demands our attention. There's this, and then there's all of that. And we know instinctively, saved or not, that there's something spiritual that's bigger. We could try and lock ourselves into this world, but we know, because God's put it in there, that there's something spiritual and something else going on. And that's the powers that be. How about the prayers that bind? They gathered to pray. So Peter was kept in prison, verse 5, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter was not alone. Peter was part of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ saw the persecution. They knew what had happened to James. They knew that Peter was still alive. While he's alive, we pray. And they were gathering together at risk to themselves, I would imagine, because Peter quieted them down and took off, and they couldn't find him. If he'd have been there, there would have been more trouble. So at risk to themselves, they gathered to pray. Multiple houses, most likely. They were rich, they were poor in the church. Nothing wrong with that. God's not the God of the poor only. God's not the God of the rich only. God saves people from all walks of life. This was a big enough house to gather people, but not the thousands that that we read about, even with some being scattered. So this is probably one of several prayer meetings going around. We're just speculating on that. But there were a lot of people gathered in this big house to pray. And they prayed. The gaze and the glance gazing at their problems and just glancing at God? No, the opposite. Glancing at their problems and gazing at God and calling on God who is the real power that is and was. Were they praying for his freedom? Praying for strength for him. We'll get to that a little bit later, but they were praying for Peter where he was. I'll never forget this old country pastor down in, it was worth our trip, down in Milton, Florida. 
I forget the denomination, I think kind of a non-denominational, charismatic-leaning type church, and some friends went there, and it was a week off, and sort of like Brian came to, to, to worship with us on his week off from, from his, his church last week, Paul and I went out there. That old pastor said this, I had never forgotten it. He said, my deep theology on prayer is this, it's better when you pray than when you don't. Yeah. And they gathered for prayer. John Calvin said this, as he's commenting on this time and looking at his own times of persecution. And listen to this. He said, And the present, necess- the present necessity requireth that they be far more fervent in prayer than commonly they are, whosoever will be counted Christians. In other words, call yourself a Christian right now. What we've got going on, Calvin in Geneva during that time, said right now what's happening requires us to pray, pray even more fervently than we normally would. He said, we see some of our brethren being brought to extreme poverty, live in exile. Others we see imprisoned, many cast into stinking dungeons, many consumed with fire, yea, we see new torments oftentimes invented, whereby being long tormented, they may feel death. He's saying they're finding, they're inventing ways to kill Christians. Now it's his day. Unless these provocations sharpen our desire to pray, we be more than blockish. I thought of Charlie Brown, you blockhead. We're more than blockish. Uh, if these provocations don't make us want to pray. Therefore, so soon as any persecution ariseth, let us by and by get ourselves to prayer. And prayer binds us together. How can you not love someone who you are fervently praying for? How can you love someone if you don't? Good question. Hard question. So we see the powers that be, the prayer that binds, and now the preservation that bewilders. And this is like a funny, it's a, there's so many funny things in this passage. The preservation that bewilders. It's trying to alliterate just to help me and to help us and remember and all these things. And it's like the preservation that beguiles. But I said, that, that doesn't sound right. I looked at beguiles. That's not quite right. I thought of that old song, uh, the old big band song, Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. And I said, okay, Bewilders, that's good. Thank you for, for that song, whoever sang that and wrote that way back when. The preservation that bewilders. Peter thought it was all a dream. In his cell in the middle of the night, remember there's no electricity, so we can use our imaginations and think there's probably some, some shadows, maybe some old movies we've watched, and you see torches on walls in some of these dungeons in these prisons. There's probably some kind of... Of, of torches out there, but it was dark in that cell, and it was night, and there weren't night lights, and there weren't, you know, sometimes in, in our tortures these days, we don't let people have the dark, and they keep blinding lights on them, and people are trying to sleep through that. But here, it was dark, and he was asleep, and this light, a Greek word, lampos, it has to do with lamp, and I thought, oh, I know where we get the word lamp from then. I know the, the, the root of that, but the light shone, from that angel. It says, uh, uh, Herod was about to bring him out, etc., etc. The angel, verse 7, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. Uh, we think of getting up in the morning. We don't want to wake anybody up and we use our little phone light to find our socks and stuff, you know. Uh, this was a light. Had to have been a supernatural sleep then on the part of the soldiers guarding him because there's no evidence that they woke up uh, but Peter saw the light. It was a shining light. I was thinking about uh, why the light. Was it to give him a reminder of the transfiguration? Remember, Peter was up on the mountain with, with James, the, the, the late uh, James. Uh, he was up there and he saw Jesus illuminated uh, with his clothes so white that... Uh, uh, a launderer couldn't even get them so white, it said, as, as they're trying to describe what the shining and illumination was. And, and uh, Peter would have heard the stories about when the angels appeared in the sky to announce the birth of Jesus and the, suddenly a great light. And uh, 
It's not for nothing that we think about the light shining in the darkness and that these are are, um, biblical words that talk about what happens when Christianity, when God breaks into the world. Or it could have been just to help him find his socks. We don't know. Why the light? He'd been in a trance before, remember? Uh, So for Peter to think he was in a trance, uh, we go, well, why would you think that? Because remember, just recently, he'd been in that trance. God put him into a trance, and that dream came down, and all those animals were there, and God said, eat them all, and he was hungry, and they were preparing food, but he was in this trance and all that. So he at this time thought, well, maybe God is speaking to me and reaching me in my prison cell the same way. He thought it was a trance, but one commentator pointed out, even though he thought he was in a trance, he still obeyed the word of the Lord. (laughs) That was interesting and good. So Peter was surprised, and finally he came to himself. Several incidences uh, the, the shackles fell off. The door that just, as they were walking to it, automatically opened. Think of Maxwell Smart walking down that hallway and all those doors opening as he gets there or, or whatever it was. The gate opening. And he's outside and finally they go a block. It says one street, one block away. And the angel leaves and finally Peter goes, wait a minute, I feel the wind on my face. Uh, what just happened to me was real. I'm not in a trance like I thought I was. It's a preservation that bewilders. What's God doing? What did God just do? Sometimes we don't even know until years later. uh, And we look back and we find some information. And God really was the one who delivered. We knew he was. We even gave him credit. But now we really see how he delivered us. uh, When we were uh, in terrible danger. People praying for Peter couldn't believe it either. This is where it gets funny. So he says, okay, I wasn't dreaming. It wasn't a trance. I know where they're going to be because that's the house. I bet they're there. Um, I'm going to head over there, knock on the door, and tell them their prayers have been answered. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, his other name was Mark, John Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Rhoda recognized his voice, didn't recognize his face. She probably didn't see his face. Who's there? Uh, Maybe she's the decoy. Maybe she's the one, and they've trusted her in case people come, get in and tell us so we can hide and get out the other way and all that. Maybe they're going to come for us. But Rhoda goes, and immediately she recognizes Peter's voice. And she's joyful. Well, some people have said, servant. I'm going to let that, they had a servant. Oh, man, that, that messes up my whole, no. Uh, she might have been, because they named her, she might have been a young member of the family. Um, some cases, uh, when Paul said in Galatians about cast out the slave woman, that's the same word. Uh, later on in Acts, there's that word for servant, and the people controlled that girl, and they were making money off of her, and when the demon got cast out, they couldn't make money off her. That was a servant. This could have been domestic help, whatever it is. And then you think about all the people in the household, and the household servants and everybody that comes to know the Lord, and, and they all get baptized. Uh, so, so, uh, if you're tempted to get hung up on the word that Rhoda was a servant girl, Rhoda was loved by them. She was named, and she was joyful. She was around Christianity. She was a Christian. She was our sister in Christ. She knew Peter's voice, and she was there while they were praying, and she heard his voice, and she's so excited, she doesn't even open the door. She runs in to tell them, hey, that's what the knock on the door is. That's Peter. And this is where it gets funny. (laughs) The people that are praying for Peter said what? Ah, you're crazy. (laughs) No, it's Peter. Nah, it's his angel. It's not him. No, it's Peter. And to give them credit, it's possible they were praying for Peter to have strength as he died. Said that earlier. It's possible. Uh, Nobody 
saw this coming. I bet nobody in their prayer said, and God, I just pray that you will make a light shine in and send your angel and make the shackles fall off and open these doors. Nobody, you know, we don't pray like that ourselves. Tell God what God has to do. We just throw ourselves at the mercy of God. God, if it's your will, we might, we might make a suggestion, but sometimes we even say, God, I'm even just suggesting this. You save. None of us, for instance, in our salvation could ever have come up with. And God, I think you should, uh, second person of the Trinity, should take on the form of a servant and come down here and die on our behalf. None of us would have even thought of that to suggest that to a God. God's saving is God's saving. We just call on the Lord. The people resist. Nah, you're mistaken. Couldn't be him. But here's the thing. And when they said he's, that it's his angel. Now, some people have said, and this is something to think about. Some people, and there's a teaching that was around then. I think sometimes it's around now. And it's part of our lingo, at least, in our, in our literary way. We talk about our guardian angel. My guardian angel was looking out for me. I, I, was, uh, I was sinning against God because I was texting and driving and I wasn't watching the road. And boy, I looked up and at the last minute, my, boy, my guardian angel, we, we might use that kind of language. Um, does the Bible say each person has a guardian angel? No. Uh, that servant that was referred to, there were multitudes of angels. They were, they were going to protect the one Elisha. Uh, we know that there are other times where one angel has protected great numbers of people. What we do know is that God protects his people and God uses angels. Here's two passages and then we'll move on. But uh, they were saying it was his, maybe his angel, his guardian angel. But if that's the case, why would his angel be there and not at the prison? So, Psalm 91, 11 through 12. Satan knew this verse. Jesus knew it too. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And there's another one that I love about angels. I was telling Annie, I learned this in Christian school once when I was a little kid. Uh, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. It's like, where's the campground? <laughs> Those who fear me. The angel of the Lord encamps, lives around those who fear him and delivers them. And it goes on to say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And all those things together, trusting in the Lord because God uses angels to protect us. So the earnest prayer made for him that night, we don't know. Uh, Luke doesn't say, uh, he just reports what they said about the angel. He doesn't give it credence as as a true thing. But we do know this. Peter was there, and it was bewildering that he was there in the flesh. Picture Rhoda's frustration. If you've ever been in a place where you've known it's true, and everybody's saying, no, it can't be true, and you know it's true. Think of that little girl. Man, I bet she cried. I mean, frustration crying, insisting. And I bet she felt pretty good when they went and saw that it really was and she'd been right and good for her. And we're going to worship God with Rhoda up in heaven one day. Good for Rhoda. Think of Peter out there. (laughs) He hears what's going on. Knock, knock, knock. He's still out there knocking. Come on. (laughs) Looking around. But picture God. Picture God up in heaven watching this scene. And I see God loving his people with a smile on his face, anticipating the joy they would feel when they realized that Peter was delivered. I think of God that way. I think of Jesus that way, walking on the Emmaus Road with a little smile as he is explaining how all the scriptures pertain to him and saying, they're going to realize it was me. And just a little, it's good. Uh, Somebody said God could have just taken Peter and, and, and done like some of these uh, movies and TV shows and blinked or whatever, you know, and, and pulled Peter there. But the stages even of walking Peter through, the chains falling off, the guards not, the doors opening, the going to a place, uh, that way, God can save how God wants to save. 
But for Peter to tell the story, it just even enhances our understanding of all the things that God does to save us and how God is so powerful over everything. And then the bewilderment in Herod's prison and in Herod's court. All the extra security. This is the part that I did not like as a kid. These verses where it says, after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And I think even as a little child, because most of my Bible reading was done to me by my mom when I was little. She read us the Bible over and over. And I remember Kathy was a little concerned. Kathy's a year and a half older than me. Kathy and I were concerned about these soldiers being put to death. And I think maybe I was doing, even as a little kid, what a lot of us do as adults. I'm blaming God then for the death of the soldiers. If God hadn't saved Peter that way, and why? And I said, Mom, why why did those soldiers have to die? And Mom didn't go into this, you know, treat us on providence and all of these things, and God not the author of sin. She just said, because Herod was a bad man, and bad men do bad things. And maybe... (laughs) Maybe that's a a good enough explanation. It's a fallen world. It's a wicked world. And sinful people do sinful things. And quit trying to blame it on if God had only done this or hadn't done this and all that. And and maybe my instinct uh, then was was wrong. And and, uh, mom's plain, simple answer was, was the absolute best one. We live in a culture of death. Life does not matter in this culture. No sympathy. A politician can put out a a Facebook tweet about her congressional aide that died, and because people don't like the legislation she didn't sign, said, but wouldn't if he had lived, wanted you to do this, and they'd just take his death. No sympathy. She's hurting for her friend who died. And what do they do? You should have signed this legislation. It's all about legislation and power. And people are nothing. We use death to score political points if we can. And Jesus is the opposite. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. Death is one way. Life is the other way. Eternal life. Heavenly life understanding even as we walk through a culture of death that we have life, an eternal life, and no one can steal that from us because God gave it to us. Bringing us to our final point, which is also the conclusion, the sermon, and it's the parallel that begs attention. Biblically, the Bible makes this analogy, and you can understand this. You were born a prisoner. Somebody said, I've been on death row all my life. Spiritual prisoner, you are born in your sins, and without intervention, you will die in your sins. The day will come when the Herods of this world will bring you forth in a spiritual sense, and you'll have the same fate as James. This prison is airtight. It's top security. People have tried to deny that it's a prison and treat it like a palace, and then they die. People have tried to be released from this prison by good behavior. The problem is, in this prison, good behavior does not work because what's required is perfect behavior, absolutely perfect behavior. We were reminded of this verse by someone in our men's group, and it was good, and you need to hear it. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You're not getting out of this prison. You're not going to get pardoned. You're not going to get looked the other way. The warden's not going to smuggle you a hacksaw and a cake and ignore those sounds of sawing. Something supernatural is needed in each one of our cases. Something outside of ourselves. 
something that satisfies God's justice and satisfies God's love. And that is found in one person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the substitute who died that we might be set free. He is the propitiation for our sins. What would Peter write about it later? 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to earth in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He came and he set you free. As sure as Peter was set free, that light shone into your life and we beheld his glory. And we were as dead to the world as Peter. Get up, get up, and struck him in the side. Didn't take a long time to look at what struck was. Like, how hard did he have to hit him? <laughs> He's saying, nah, should have brought a pail of water to throw in his face, uh, whatever it was. But he was dead to the world. Wasn't sitting there watching. They're going to come get me. They're going to bust me out. They're going to tie the, the, strap their horses and wagons to the, to the bars of the, of the jail like in the old westerns and pull me out and I'm going to get out that way. No, he wasn't watching. He was asleep. You hath he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. He released you. Your salvation came from outside of yourself. He came and set you free and he stayed and he carried out your sentence. And when God looks at you now, as a judge, God looks at you and he says, not guilty. And when God looks at you as your father, he says, that's my little daughter and I love her. That's my boy. And we thank God for the freedom that he's given us and for releasing us from our own prison. And let's pray and let's go to the table and think about it some more. Lord, thank you for salvation through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the freedom, the being brought back to life, the release. Thank you for paying our price so that we could get out of jail. It wasn't cheap, but it was free for us. And it costs Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper. He said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You're welcome at this table if you've been saved by God. If you're if, if you're trusting in Jesus, you, you've, you've had to acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you're not right with God, that you can't come on your own merit. Even if you're like a really, really, really good person by the world standards or even by any standards, you're a good person, you're not a perfect person, and you're banned. You acknowledge that, but then you say, you know what, I'm not trusting in any of my goodness. My faith is in Jesus Christ for my salvation. And I'm trusting in him alone, not, not in me. If that's the case, you're welcome at the table. We understand, and, and you understand, that you're not saved as a free agent, that you're part of a body of Christ. And you're acknowledging that. So this table is for all who are trusting in Christ alone and 
for salvation, who are members in good standing in any evangelical, or we would say gospel preaching, proclaiming church. We'll pray and set these elements aside for God's use in our lives now. Lord, thank you so much for your sacrifice for us. Thank you for your substitutionary death on the cross. We thank you that our sins were paid for. And we thank you that they were paid for by Jesus. And that Jesus was the acceptable sacrifice. And that uh, with his stripes we are healed. And so, Lord, we set these elements aside for you to do your work in us. Lord, we acknowledge your human birth. We acknowledge your death. We acknowledge your resurrection. We acknowledge your ascension and your sending of the Holy Spirit, which means you're present with us now. And we acknowledge and look forward to your coming back to receive us to yourself, that where you are, there we may be also. And so take these physical elements and use them for our spiritual good, however you choose. In Jesus' name, amen.